Amen. I'm looking at a room full of sinners, and I stand before you as a sinful man. And it is wonderful news that none who hope in the Lord Jesus Christ will ever be put to shame. Our God is faithful and our God is true, so let's go to Him now and ask Him for His help as we now look to His Word. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we do come before You now as we have already acknowledged today that we are sinners. We are in desperate need of Your help. And we know that as we now look to the Bible, unless Your Holy Spirit shows up and moves in power, then we're wasting our time. And we came here today, God, wanting to hear from you. We came here not wanting to waste our time. And so we pray that you would come. We pray that you would fill me with your spirit as I aim to preach your word. And we pray that your spirit would fall on all of these dear people. That we might be given eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray that we would be more grateful today, maybe than ever, for what Jesus Christ has accomplished in our place. We pray that you would be using this time to strengthen our faith and our trust and our confidence in him. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, one of the songs that we sing here at CBC uh, that I, I enjoy, especially before the, the preaching moment, because of the first verse of the song, contains another verse that goes like this. Sisters, will you join and help us? Moses' sister aided him. Will you help the trembling mourners who are struggling hard with sin? Tell them about the Savior. Tell them that he will be found. Sisters, pray, and holy manna will be showered all around. I'm quoting there from the third verse of the song, Brethren, we have met to worship. But in particular, my interest this morning is in that question that's posed to the sisters in that song. Will you help the trembling mourners who are struggling hard with sin? And I wonder as you sit here this morning, do you understand yourself to be struggling with sin? Or is it just absolutely obvious to you that you are wrestling and struggling hard against sin? You feel weighed down maybe. You feel heartbroken over the ways that you have sinned against God and even people that you love this week. I trust, as I look out on this room, that I am not alone in being mindful of the fact that I have wounded people close to me even this week and I have sinned against my Lord and it's heavy. It's heavy. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, one of the greatest chapters in Scripture in my opinion, makes it quite clear that the Christian life is one of struggle with indwelling sin. There are things that we want to do and we don't find ourselves doing them. There are things that we don't want to do and yet we find ourselves doing those things. And we struggle and we wrestle and we cry out with the apostle, who can deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. I wonder if that's you today. Very personally, just kind of in, a, in an attempt here to pull back the curtain, one of my aims in pastoral ministry, as we're still in the early years here at CBC, is to comfort struggling Christians with the truth of the gospel. To apply gospel realities and identity in Christ realities to the real struggle of the Christian life. Because as, as your pastor, I know some of the struggles that are going on in this room, and I know the struggles that exist in my own home and in my own heart and mind. And if we're ever going to have any hope in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the struggle, we've got to get underneath those things with gospel and with identity in Christ, heavenly, high-level realities. And so today, as we turn our attention again to Paul's letter from, or to the Galatians, I should say, the gospel and those gospel realities will be in front of us as they have been for weeks now. I've said this a few times. I realize that many of these sermons are similar as we've made our way through the book of Galatians, because Paul continues to contend vehemently for the truth of the gospel. How is it that sinful people are reconciled to a holy God? Is it in any way, is it in any measure, in accord with what we do? Do we contribute to this equation at all? If we're going to be reconciled to God, does what we do contribute anything to our standing before Him and how He views us? Or... 
Is it a matter completely of the righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to us by faith? So Paul has been laying out his argument. And we've been looking at it for a number of weeks. And it's before us again today. And these gospel realities that Paul is going to lay out for us today in Galatians chapter 3, they matter a ton. Not just at the start of the Christian life. So I think that sometimes is the assumption. That the gospel matters a lot as sort of a front door to get in. It matters a lot for the unbeliever maybe. That, oh my goodness, yes, you need to see that the gospel is true and turn from your sin and trust Christ and cast yourself upon His mercy. But now that you're kind of in here, now that you're living the Christian life, we need to move on to other things. And as we often talk about here, we, we want to build a culture where we really never move beyond the gospel. But in order to not just give lip service to that, we have to consider how does the gospel apply to the believer? And we're going to get to do that today. And I rejoice in that reality. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up to Galatians chapter 3. And we'll be looking today at verses 10 through 14 specifically of Galatians chapter 3. But for context, I'm going to begin reading in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1 because it's all one continuous argument that the Apostle Paul is making. Now that you've had a moment to turn there, listen as I read the Word of God. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Amen. Thanks be to God for His Word today and every day. My plan for us today is essentially to preach to you a two-part sermon. In part one, I want us to consider Paul's argument together, and I'm going to give you Paul's argument in four points for the copious note-takers in the room. And then in the second portion of the sermon, I want us to consider two ways that Paul's teaching about justification, about salvation and our standing before God matter for the Christian life. Not just at the conversion moment, but for the Christian life. So that's my plan. And I want us to go ahead now and dive into part one as we look to Paul's argument. And just by way of context, keep in mind that Paul is continuing to argue that we are justified, that is, declared righteous before God. We are declared righteous before the Lord by faith, by trusting in Christ and His work, rather than being justified by works of the law, our obedience. Paul has just argued in this section of text we considered last week, he has just argued that those who have faith, like Abraham, participate in the blessing of Abraham. And so now today the argument is going to pivot a little bit. If faith is the pathway to blessing, today we're going to consider that reliance upon the law is the pathway to a curse. We're going to think about what Jesus has to do with redeeming sinners from that curse. So point number one of Paul's argument is this. Anyone who relies on keeping the law for righteousness is under a curse. I'm going to give you that heading again. Anyone who relies on keeping the law for righteousness is under a curse. 
You can see that that's what Paul is conveying in verse 10, if you put your eyes there. He says, what I just did. To which you're saying, brother, this is a pretty simple exposition, which it most often is. And we say, amen. You can see it as easily as I can. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. And then Paul will cite Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 26, which we read earlier, even in our service this morning. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. So judgment, the judgment of God, a curse, comes to anyone who does not do the law. If we are relying upon works of the law for righteousness, if we are relying upon works of the law for the ground of our standing before God, unless we do them all, unless we do it all and keep it all perfectly, we come under a curse and the judgment of God. It's quite clear that keeping the whole law perfectly is Paul's understanding of Deuteronomy 27. It's clear in the way that he interprets it for us, the way that he even cites it. This is another great example of a New Testament writer doing some Holy Spirit-inspired interpretation. And we rejoice in that because it helps us to understand our Bibles. As Paul looks to Deuteronomy 27 and the curses that are laid out there, that we just read earlier. And I hope as you're sitting there, it's just cursed be this person. Cursed be this person. Cursed be this person. And you're sitting there thinking, this is not going to go well for me. And so then Paul concludes for us that unless you are able to keep all of those laws, all of the statutes of the Lord perfectly, you are under a curse if you are aiming to earn your righteousness before God. This sounds very similar. This kind of all or nothing language sounds similar to another New Testament book, the book of James, where James will write in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. So therefore, if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. This law-keeping business is an all or nothing proposition. If we want to merit even anything before God in terms of our standing before Him, we best be perfect or we will come under judgment. Simply put, Paul, it's clear in his mind that no one can earn righteousness before God by keeping the law because everyone is a sinner. This is an impossible proposition that anybody would fulfill God's law perfectly. Everyone fails. You know that. As well as I know that. Even the person in this room or in this area who would have the highest conceivable view of humanity would acknowledge that we all make mistakes sometimes. Just human after all. We're going to fail. We're going to fall. Scripture says the same thing about us. Psalm 143. The psalmist says, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Again in Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Nobody. 1 Kings 8 and verse 46 tells us there is no one who does not sin. If there was any question about it, it's pretty plain. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Solomon writes, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Okay. So how can anyone be saved? How can anyone be declared righteous in the sight of God if we all fail and what's required is perfection? Which brings us to the second point of Paul's argument, even as we consider it today, which is this. The righteous live by faith, not by keeping the law. The righteous live by faith, not by keeping the law. You can put your eyes on verse 11. Paul says, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. He is quoting the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk writes that the righteous shall live by faith. The point is that righteousness before God comes through faith. Not your own merit, not your own working, not your own willing. And the question, of course, the million dollar question is faith in what? Or faith in whom? And Paul has been very clear in this letter already up to now 
that we are justified, we are declared righteous by God through faith in the Lord Jesus, who has accomplished righteousness on our behalf. So we are looking, as we've said so many times, the posture of the Christian life is always to be looking outside of us to save what's wrong in us. We are looking outside of us to the righteousness of another, namely Jesus Christ, that is then credited to us, it is counted to us through faith. It is not that we are infused with righteousness. It's not that we are made inherently righteous, but that we are counted as righteous. Purely because of what Christ has done in our place and on our behalf. So that's what Paul means and that's what Paul understands the prophet Habakkuk to have been writing. The righteous, the one who is righteous, will live by faith in the promises of God through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Righteousness by faith, as you can see, is contrasted with righteousness by law-keeping or human merit. And it's been clear throughout Galatians that Paul is putting these two things next to one another, so I don't really feel the need to labor that today. And we're going to transition now to our third consideration, our third point of Paul's argument, which we're going to find in verse 12. And it's that law-keeping for righteousness is opposed to faith. Law-keeping for righteousness is opposed to faith. It's contrary to it. Let's consider that together for just a moment. Paul says there in verse 12, but the law is not of faith. They're different. It's like fire and water, right? Rather, and now he's going to cite Leviticus 18, the one who does them, meaning the law, works of the law, the one who does them shall live by them. And what... Paul means there and what the the writer of Leviticus, Moses, means in that context is that to live by doing works of the law means that you live eternally by doing works of the law. You will live and find your standing and your righteousness in doing works of the law. And so Paul is contrasting that kind of thinking That kind of approach, that kind of law-keeping, merit-based approach with faith. And he says they are contrary to one another. Remember now, in all of this conversation, it is true. When God tells us throughout His Old Covenant in particular, in the Old Testament, He says this many times. That those who do these things will live. It is true that if you were to obey God's law and do it perfectly, that you could merit eternal life. That is true. And as we've already considered today, it's impossible for fallen sinners born in Adam. Keeping the law for righteousness or for justification is trusting in your own merit. It's trusting in righteousness that you can accomplish. Whereas faith is the opposite of that. As we've already thought about it, it is a looking outside of yourself to the righteousness provided by someone else. So law keeping and faith cannot be reconciled. We've thought about that over and over again. That there is no way at all in any measure for law-keeping to have a seat at the table when it comes to the gospel reality. It is either entirely of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is either entirely about His righteousness, His merit, His atoning work, or it's about our righteousness, our work, our merit. It's either or. It's not a both-and proposition at all. And when we say that law-keeping and faith are contrary to each other, I want to make one clarifying statement just for us to wrap our minds around and, and, and agree about this together. To say that justification by faith is opposed to law keeping does not mean that justification by faith is somehow opposed to God's law wholesale. What we are Comparing the juxtaposition is a question of justification. The contradiction is justification by faith over and against justification according to the law. Justification by faith and the law of God are in no way contradictory. And we'll consider that more in just a moment. But I want to move us on now to the fourth point of Paul's argument. And this is a long-ish heading, so I'm going to say it a couple of times again. Point number four of Paul's argument we'll find in verses 13 and 14, and it's that Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law so that through faith in him we might receive the blessing of Abraham. 
Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law so that through faith in him we might receive the blessing of Abraham. So we have considered the fact that every one of us, everybody in this room, everybody on planet earth currently or who has ever lived or will live, every human being without exception is a sinner. None are perfect. None are righteous. None do good. No, not one. There is none who seek after God. And because of that, because of the witness of Scripture that anyone who doesn't keep God's law perfectly, that person is under a curse, we can agree together with the Apostle Paul that we are all cursed people, naturally. Because of our failure to keep the law, we are under that curse, and the argument of the Apostle Paul and the entire witness and testimony of Scripture is that the Lord Jesus Christ would come to save His people, he would come to redeem his people from underneath that curse. And he would bring the blessing of God to all who trust in him. And so the Apostle Paul takes us again to the book of Deuteronomy to demonstrate how the Lord Jesus Christ became a curse in our place. It is no coincidence that he was hung on a tree on a Friday afternoon outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. It is no coincidence that he died that way, given that the word of God had declared thousands of years prior that everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. The Lord Jesus Christ took the curse that lawbreakers deserve. That's us, lawbreakers. It's who we are. He took that curse upon himself. He serves as the substitute for lawbreakers like you and me. He became a curse, he took the judgment, and he paid the penalty. Praise be to his name. And passages like this, verse 13 in particular of Galatians 3, they result in a, an understanding of Christ's atoning work, to use a, a theological term that we're going to think about together, that is referred to rightly as penal substitution. Christ's atoning work at the cross in the place of sinners was penal in that he paid the penalty that you deserve and I deserve, that every lawbreaker deserves. That penalty is the righteous and good wrath of God against sin. We've talked about this many times, how God is good and therefore He will judge evil. It's not because He's mean. What kind of God would He be if He did not punish evil or if He ignored evil or overlooked it and just swept it under the rug as though it's no big deal? What a horrifying proposition that would be. But God, because He's good and righteous, will punish evil. And so that is the punishment that the Lord Jesus Christ took upon himself that he did not deserve in any way. He had never sinned. He had lived a perfectly righteous life. And so therefore, when he went to the cross bearing the sins of his people, it was for their sake, not his, that he would suffer. He paid the penalty. And you already understand, I think, a little bit of what we mean by that substitution word. He did all of that in the place of sinful people like you and me. In the place of the ones who deserve the penalty, He paid the penalty. And we rejoice in that reality. The prophet Isaiah, 700 or more years before the Lord Jesus would show up on the scene, wrote these words about the coming Savior. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. It's like we just saw Him. But he was wounded for our transgressions. For our transgressions he was wounded. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So friend, as you sit here this morning... And you're mindful of your sin. You're mindful of the failings. Rather than that being a cause for despair, might that be a cause for praise and thanksgiving and rejoicing as you consider what it is that God has rescued you from. He has rescued you not simply from His wrath and judgment. He in large measure has rescued you from yourself. From your own wickedness 
that follows you around everywhere you go. Problems follow you and they follow me because we're there. And God is saving us from not only his wrath, but even from the curse of sin. He's saving us from the effects of the fall. He's changing us even now. And he will finally deliver us on that great day. And sin will be no more. What we deserve, what we deserve, we will never face because of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we have earned, we will never endure because Christ endured it for us. What we have merited, punishment, judgment, alienation, we'll never know it. We will never know it because Jesus has known it for us. This is a cause for great rejoicing. And even if it's solemn praise, it's cause for praise in your bones and in your soul and in your heart that God has done these things for you through the Lord Jesus Christ. As we continue to think just a minute about Christ's work in our place, this, I think, should be said. We talk about Christianity, biblical Christianity, rightly as a religion of grace. It's not a religion of our merit, right? It's a religion of grace from God. And at the same time, it's important that we see how that grace is in no way a diminishment of justice or righteousness. The standards of justice, in, in order for God to save sinners, the standards of justice are not lowered at all. The standards of justice are upheld. There is no hedging whatsoever on justice in God's world. It is because Jesus Christ has satisfied the justice of God, that the Lord is righteous in being not only the just one, but he is the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. He is righteous in the way that he saves. And it goes certainly to reason that the standards of righteousness have not been lowered in God's economy. This idea that righteousness has somehow been hedged upon in order for God to save sinners is not true. The standards of Christianity in terms of the Bible standards for righteousness are way higher, way higher than any other religion of the world. Why do I say that? It's because when Jesus himself will preach the law in the Sermon on the Mount, maybe the most famous sermon ever preached, Christ rightly applies the law of God to the heart level. He's talking to people who outwardly are doing a decent job of keeping the law. But he says, you are deluded and deceived to think that you are fulfilling the law. Yeah, you might not have slept with someone who's not your spouse, but you've lusted and you're a lawbreaker. You might not have killed someone, but if you've been angry, you're a lawbreaker. You have not done what you think you have done in keeping the law. This is no mere external standard. This is heart level, impossible righteousness, right? That's the standard. And God applies that through the work of Jesus Christ to all who trust in him. And so this justice satisfying work of Jesus and righteousness accomplishing work of Jesus as it's applied to God's people through faith perfectly upholds justice and righteousness. And yet many sinful sons are brought to glory. Praise be to God. As we look now to verse 14, Paul's conclusion He's kind of wrapping this piece of the argument together as he kind of circles back to Abraham now. He's going to remind us of the fact that Christ did these things. He came and suffered under the law to redeem us from that curse. We thought a lot about how he perfectly fulfilled the law in our place so that we could be positively credited with his righteousness. We'll think more about that in the coming weeks. Jesus did these things so that we would be blessed along with Abraham. So that we, even as Gentiles, might receive the blessing that God promised to Abraham. That we might receive the Holy Spirit by faith. So God, in saving the nations, in saving sinners like you and me, is still demonstrating his faithfulness. He is demonstrating the fact that he is a promise-keeping God. And he is delivering on every promise that he made to Abraham so long ago. 
God is delivering to us. As even I'm looking at a room full of, I trust, Gentile people. He is delivering to us the blessing that he made to Abraham. He's delivering to us the promise of a people. We are now a part of the people of God. We once were alienated and cut off from God without hope in the world, right? But no more. Through Christ we've been brought near. And we are now a part of God's called out ones, the church. We will be a part of the people of God forever. That's one of the blessings of heaven. The new heavens and the new earth is that we will be in right relationship with one another. We will be in perfect relationship with each other. It's going to be a joyful thing. Without the presence of sin, no more wounding each other. No more harming people you love. We now are a part of that people of God. Just like God promised Abraham a people. We are also going to inherit a land. Just like God promised Abraham. This land called the new heavens and the new earth. The heavenly Jerusalem will come down and this eternal existence that we're going to have with God forever will be just as physical as this existence is now. That's a remarkable thought. That the creation is going to be redeemed and restored. And that we will enjoy this land, this holy land that God will give His people. It will be ours by faith in Christ. And then God is also delivering to us Blessedness. He promised Abraham that he would bless him. He's doing that primarily in giving us himself forever. We get him forever. Instead of being alienated and cut off like we were, we now get to call him Father. He is now our God and we are his people. And we will behold his glory forever. We will see Christ as he is. And Jesus came to secure those blessings. So that for all who trust in Him, they would be certain and they would be reality. The receiving of the Holy Spirit, which we see Paul write about at the tail end of verse 14. I think we should understand that as not a a separate blessing than the blessing of Abraham at all. But just a reiteration of, of that same blessing. To receive the Holy Spirit is to enjoy the blessings of Abraham. Paul's been quite clear that the way God's people are marked out in the new covenant is by the new birth. This is what we thought about this weeks ago. How in the old covenant, circumcision was this marker. And now, in the new covenant, God's people are marked out by the new birth. By receiving the Holy Spirit by faith. And then, once that has happened, we baptize people into the church. And so... Receiving the Holy Spirit, I think we should understand as being synonymous with receiving the blessing of Abraham. The prophet Isaiah also writes these words, putting together the pouring out of God's Spirit and the the idea, the principle of God's blessing. In Isaiah 44, he writes this, God promises one day, I will pour out my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. God is doing that. He is delivering on that promise through faith and through the Word. Of his son. And so now I want to move us, friends, into the, the second piece of our sermon that will be shorter. It's our time to second piece of our time together. Where I want us to just think of two ways that these gospel realities matter for the Christian life. Two ways that these gospel realities of justification by faith, not works of the law, matter for the Christian life. And throughout these series, this series, I should say, we've been considering some of these things, how the Christian life is always a battle for faith. We've considered especially what it means or looks like to never move beyond the gospel in that we are trusting and resting in the righteousness of Christ every day. We've thought about those things. And these two, these two meditations that I, that I want to offer are offered especially with the struggling Christian in view. And I I would count myself as as one of those. We know what it's like to struggle. It's real. The struggle is real. And God is faithful. So number one. We've got to wrap our minds around this reality. That our sanctification. By sanctification we mean growth in holiness. Growth in righteousness. Our sanctification is a product of our justification. Not the other way around. Let's say that again. 
Our sanctification is a product of our justification, not the other way around. So out of the gate, from the jump, I'm going to say this. Do we care about holiness at CBC? Yeah, we do. Do we care about godly piety, about reverence and devotion? Yes, you better believe we do. And it's essential that we get this relationship between justification and sanctification right. Because if we don't get it right, if we don't understand it, friends, I'm afraid that we rob ourselves of the freedom that we are meant to know in Christ. The rest that we are meant to know in Christ that He bought and secured for us. And then we introduce bondage into the Christian life. So as we've considered several times, even in this series thus far, our works, our obedience, our doing good, contribute, and that word is important, contribute nothing to our standing before God now or in the future. So we, we like to talk about good works and obedience as evidence of the new birth. We like to talk about good works and obedience as fruit of the new birth. We like to talk about good works and obedience as even maybe confirmation, in one sense, of the new birth. But we must never use any kind of language of contribution or preservation. We don't contribute to our standing before God through our working, and we don't preserve our understanding before, or excuse me, our standing before God through our working. It's not as though God says, okay, you're justified today by faith in Christ. Now go out there and keep yourself justified by obedience. No. We stand in Christ alone today and at the end of history. We trust Christ alone. Our righteousness is found in Christ alone now and forevermore. We will be made righteous one day when we are resurrected from the grave. We will be raised imperishable. But before the judgment seat of God, there will be no misunderstanding. It will be the righteousness of Christ or nothing. And so, this matters for how we live the Christian life together. This matters for how I pastor. This matters for how Ron pastors. Because, so there's a time, obviously, there's a time in the Christian life when warning is necessary. When strong words are necessary. Those cases primarily are these. When an individual proclaiming to be a Christian wants to deny the sinfulness of sin. I'm doing something that the Bible says is clearly sin, but I'm not going to call it sin. Okay, wake up. Warning is necessary. Or, when an individual, again, professing to be a Christian, is saying, look, yeah, I am doing something, and I know it's sin, and I don't care. Wake up. That's when warning is necessary. But when we're talking about struggling Christians, when we're talking about people who are wounded and heartbroken over their sin, who genuinely love God and want to honor Him, and yet find themselves over and over again failing and falling, the kind of language that's sometimes used I find entirely inappropriate. This kind of, if you want to be justified, you better be holy approach. No good when we're dealing with the struggling sinner. We've thought about the, the illustration of a tree and its fruit before, and I don't want to labor it today, but it is the most biblical, helpful example of this relationship of justification to sanctification. A tree is known by its fruit, and we've thought about before how the fruit on the tree is evidence of life in the tree. That's true. But that fruit on the tree could never give the tree life. To put it another way, we live in apple country, right? We can drive out to Hendersonville and go to the beautiful apple orchards. Many of us like to do that. They make those cool cider donuts in the fall. Amen, somebody. So they, those are great things to do. You go out to the apple orchards, you enjoy that time. You enjoy picking apples with the kids, whatever it may be. But for us to confuse this issue, 
the relationship between the new birth and then sanctification, justification and sanctification, would be for us to say, you need to go out and be holy in order to be right with God, if we use that kind of language. Be holy, and then your standing before God is good. That is just as insane as you going out to that apple orchard and picking a bushel of apples or whatever they call them, dumping them on the ground and telling them to produce an apple tree. That's lunacy. You would say, brother, that's crazy. Of course, we plant a tree and then the fruit's produced. You don't put a pile of apples on the ground and expect a tree to sprout up. Exactly. The idea that we would tell people and that we would talk, like, go do righteous things in order to be righteous before God is insane. We've got the relationship mixed up when we think that way. Rather, we should be saying, having been declared righteous by faith in Christ, now go and do righteous things. And yes, you will do them imperfectly, but they'll be real. And they'll be honored by God in heaven because they are done through faith in His Son. It is only, and honestly, if we're going to look at Scripture, it's clear that it is only through the new birth, through receiving the Holy Spirit, being given a new heart. It is only through that supernatural reality that we can ever be doers of God's law at all. Because if we are ever going to love God and love neighbor with some semblance of a right heart, God has to do that. We can't produce that kind of loving and working on our own. We can't muster that up. This is not white knuckle willpower religion. This is supernatural. Life from God given through faith in His Son. Righteousness pronounced over us because of what Christ did for us and the penalty He paid for us. And now go and be holy. And as I've said before, and I will refrain from saying too much about this today, the age-old objection to the faith alone gospel is that if you preach that, if you tell people that they don't do anything to earn righteousness before God. If you tell people that simply by trusting in Christ, they are counted righteous, you are going to produce lawless people. You're going to produce a bunch of people who don't give a rip about holiness. Friends, that is flat out not true. Anybody who has ever experienced the new birth knows that that is not true. To make that argument is a fundamental misunderstanding of conversion and it demonstrates a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. People who have been saved by God, people who have been counted righteous in Christ, now love God and want to honor God. Now love people and want to do right to others. Yes, imperfectly, but really. So don't give me this nonsense that this faith alone stuff is going to produce antinomianism. No, it will not. It produces love-driven obedience. It produces grace-driven obedience and holiness. And that is the biblical reality. And so now before our time gets away from us, I want us to move on to our second consideration. How do these gospel realities matter for the Christian life? If the first was understanding the relationship between our justification and then our growth in holiness. The second one is more of a question that I, I want to ask you. So, what do you do when you sin? Because you do. I do. What, what do you do with your sin? So when you sin, let me put it to you this way. When you sin, do you stop being a Christian? When you sin, are you left to face the judgment of God somehow? It's a real question. What about you? It's a real question. It's like there are things that, that pop into my mind and things that well up into my heart that horrify me. And I trust I'm looking at a room full of people that would say the same. So what do you do with that? When you see something and feel something, you're like, oh gosh, that is evil. Am I somehow now out of right standing with God? The answer 
you already are assuming it. The answer is no. But there have been people who have said things that are devastating and have been devastating to even the church in our land in our current moment. I want to, I don't do this often, but I want to read to you a quote from a man who has been dubbed the father of modern revivalism. This man was a significant figure in the 1820s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And much of what he did and even some of his teaching and his theology has infiltrated the American evangelical church in ways a lot of us don't even realize sometimes. This gentleman's name, I'll, I'll tell you who it is because you're going to ask me at the door anyway. The gentleman's name is Charles Finney. Charles Finney, he was a significant figure in the so-called Second Great Awakening, which really was not an awakening at all, but we can talk about that another time. So Charles Finney, in, the, in response to the question, this father of modern revivalism, who guys even like Billy Graham and Jerry Falwell, the founder of Liberty University, would call a hero of the faith. When asked this question, when you sin, when a person sins, do they stop being a Christian? His response is this, quote, Whenever he, the professor, whenever he sins, he must, for the time being, cease to be holy. This is self-evident. Whenever he sins, he must be condemned. He must incur the penalty of the law of God. The Christian, therefore, is justified no longer than he obeys and must be condemned when he disobeys or antinomianism is true. And then these chilling words. In these respects then, the sinning Christian and the unconverted sinner are upon precisely the same ground. Close quote. I want to use bad words about how horrible that theology is. That is false and flat out heretical. And yet, the sadness is that a man who would say that is looked to by many as some sort of pioneer of great methods to use in evangelism and revival. My aim is not to bash revivalism this morning, but my aim is to say, look, like these gospel realities must be ever before us. We must never assume the gospel. We must never assume how it is that we are in right standing with God because it has all kinds of practical, everyday, real implications. So to the answer to the question, when you sin, do you stop being a Christian? When you sin, are you left to face the judgment of God? The answer is absolutely not. And that's not because of anything in you. It's because of Jesus Christ and what He did for you. So the struggle may be real. It is real. And this is why it matters so much for everyday living, everyday struggling and striving and praying and reading and church life that we would always know where our righteousness lies. If you sit here this morning and you're concerned about your growth in the faith, I would actually contend that the people who are most concerned about the lack of growth they see are often doing pretty well because they're, they're in tune to the fact that they're sinning. And people who are obsessed with their own growth and proud of it, we need to have a conversation. The struggle may be real and Christ is your righteousness. The struggle is real and Christ is the ground of your standing before God today and always. And it matters not at all how much you may grow in the faith between now and when you die or the Lord returns. On your worst day and on your best day, your standing before God is grounded completely in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when our sin is breaking our hearts and when our sin is discouraging us, or frankly, when our sin is tearing other people apart, when it's ripping our homes apart. We can, we can take heart because Jesus has paid for every failing. And we are His forevermore. Jesus has accomplished perfect atonement and He has fulfilled perfect righteousness. We cannot hear that enough. We can't hear enough about when He hung on the cross and breathed His last and said, It's finished. 
He meant full atonement and He meant the perfect, righteous life that God requires is done. And for everyone who trusts in me, it's over. Can't hear that enough. And so then as a church, what does this mean for us? It means that we strive individually and certainly together to walk humbly before our God. We're quick to confess sin. We're quick to own sin before the Lord and with each other, frankly. We realize there's nothing to fear. It's okay that I would admit to being a broken sinner because we're not going to confuse the issue. I don't need to champion my own righteousness because that's not where I stand anyway. I'm going to champion the righteousness of Christ and be honest about my sin and my struggle. I'm going to get it into the light. And then we live with gratitude before God. Thankful to Him for what He has done for us in the Lord Jesus. And we live with gratitude together before God. Thankful for what He has done in saving us and transforming us and calling us to His people. And not only do we live honestly and openly with each other, we live charitably together. This kind of understanding of the gospel produces love and charity and humility and kindness in a church like nothing else. It's like God set it up this way. When we understand who we are in Adam, we understand what God has done for us in Christ. We understand that we are all born with bends in our frame and jagged edges of our personalities. We realize that we are born with struggles and proclivities and predispositions to sin. That doesn't exonerate any of us, but it does produce compassion for one another. You're a struggler, just like me. Your righteousness is in Christ, just like mine. Let's walk together. And there's room to limp. There's room to limp. It's all right that our cadence is not perfect because we're always pointing one another to the Savior. We often say here, we're imperfect people rescued by a perfect Savior. Amen. Praise God for that perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your Son. We thank you for his life, that he lived perfectly in our place. We thank you for his death, in which he paid the penalty that we really deserve. We praise you for his triumphant resurrection for His ascension, for the fact that He prays for us now, and we praise You and thank You for the fact that He's coming back to get us. And He's coming back to judge the world, but that that is not a fearful thing for us at all, because He is the one who died for us. We pray, God, that this gospel truth of Yours would penetrate our hearts today, maybe like never before. That we would be stirred to greater love and affection for You and for each other. We pray that you would continue to give us the gifts of faith and repentance. That we might turn from our sins and cast ourselves under the mercy of Christ always. We pray for these things. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.